I am Planta on the line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. Renee Saragini Saklakart joins me again. She's just published Brahma's Quest, the second installment in her epic fantasy saga in verse, The Heart of This Journey Bears All Patterns. It's a book-length poem that features the time-traveling demi-goddess Brahma, a locksmith and the saga's hero. We're in 2087 now, and Brahma is back on a planet Earth ravaged by climate change and global inequality. I'll ask Renee about uh, where the book finds our hero, as well as get her to tell us about new characters that are in the book, like Sharonda, a famed general and war strategist, a warrior, scholar named Bartholomew, a kind of Robespierre, and Rajankrantz and Gaberbai, two assassins modeled after Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. And uh, we'll talk about this series and the past 10 years she spent writing about the existential crises we face. Renee Saragini Saklikar is the author of five books, including the award-winning Children of Air India and Listening to Bees. Her uh, poetry has been published in sundry literary magazines and anthologies. She was uh, the Poet Laureate of the uh, city of uh, Surrey from 2015 to 2018 and uh, teaches creative writing and editing at Kwantlen Polytechnic University. Visit thecanadaproject.wordpress.com for more. We taped this interview in mid-August. This uh, new book is published by uh, Nightwood Editions, and as a bit of a programming note, Renee will be back on the program in a couple of weeks uh, to continue the conversation. I am always happy to talk to Renee about her work, about words, and life itself, frankly. Please uh, welcome back to the Plant Online program, Renee uh, Saragini Saklakar. Ms. Saklakar, good morning. Good morning. How are you? You know what? I'm good. I'm so happy to be again in conversation with you. It is hot out, Joe. It, it is. It's really hot out, yeah. And, you know, I just I, I, I listened to an old interview a few weeks ago and, and um, uh, with, a, with a fellow poet, Matt Rader. And um, I actually asked Matt at the beginning of the interview how they were. Uh, yeah. saying that I don't ask people that because I really don't care how people are. <laughs> um, I'm conscious of asking that, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. But when I do ask it, I really do mean it because a lot of people ask how people are and not mean it. I actually do mean it when I when I invoke mm-hmm. it. And uh, you're someone that I, I, I mean that to because I, you know, I haven't seen you in a while. Yeah. And um, I guess I've lived in your world of, of uh, Brahma's quest for the last few days. Um, but actually, I, I, I am concerned how you are and, and, and hope you're well. <laughs> well, thank you. It's been a tough time. I won't lie about that. Uh, I lost my mother last year, mm-hmm. and, you know, the pandemic, uh, being married to someone who's very involved in the healthcare response to that, uh, as a teacher, watching my students grapple with all the things all of us have been dealing with. Uh, there's been moments of joy, beauty, intense, creative rewards, like being able, despite all these things, to come out with this book too, this series, but it hasn't been easy, there's no question, yeah. Yeah, that's the thing that as I finished the book, I kept, um, I kept feeling, I guess, in my mind, Um, it is a book that's set in the future, but it's very much of our times, in in Mm -hmm. terms of the the, the fears and the anxieties that we all have. and they're they're born out in the book, um, and I can't help but think um, I'm not going to be around in 2087. So, do you think I can get complacent about um, the way things are? 
It's a very, it's a, I'm half serious, but um, I guess a lot of people live their life like that, don't they? That they, they, they don't think about the future as much. Yeah, well, I think I think so. I I don't really know. I know for me, somehow, some way, I have entered for such a long time this imaginative state of world building, and I'm really, I think, part of a huge crew of writers and creatives who delve in science fiction, sci-fi, fantasy, all the subgenres. And I'm a poet writing a long, huge epic. So time and its dimensions are always part of me. It's just the way my brain thinks. I'm always thinking about what would happen if, you know, climate change as we are currently experiencing it was even worse mm. or supply chain difficulties even worse or access to electricity not that much or the inequities I see around me and experience even worse. And I do feel, I think we talked about this last time for book one of the series, that my dystopian world building, the future and the present have kind of caught up to each other in yeah. your eerie ways, which I think you're kind of alluding to. So. Yeah, the, I kept um, uh, seeing things in the book that um, reminded me of, of uh, say, uh, bad situations over the last, let's say, even four or five years. Um things that that uh, I've seen around me that have worried me and um, and um, th- that's a part of the book I guess where parts of the book where um, you, you don't feel <laughs> it's science fiction you know mm-hmm. you feel like yeah. you know the, the, this is something that that the author has thought of um, uh, in, in in recent weeks. Um, sort of, you know, the, the experiences. The other thing that I enjoyed um, a great deal is that um, where where you live, the part of Vancouver that you live comes through in the book. There's certain place names that are, are um, I guess, around you, right? Yeah, it's interesting, though. I would suggest that book two has some key differences. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And certainly in our conversation about book one, um, we talked about um, really central events in the series, like the Battle of Kingsway, and how deeply I wanted to, particularly in book one, evoke in a science fiction poetic way my lived experience of East Vancouver. Full mm. plot to yeah. I do want to edge into book two just with a couple of little factoids that, and you've alluded to it, so we're in the year 2087 in part one of the book, and then part two of the book is all the books are divided into two so far. And so in part two of the book, it's 18 years later. Yeah. And two key locations in book two, Brahma's Quest, that we're talking about today, towards the end of September, are Ahmedabad, Gujarat, where my mother's family is ultimately from, that area, uh-huh. and Paris, where some of our key characters, which I hope we'll get into shortly, yeah. um, Paris is the site of the resistance to the evil consortium's brief shining moment of victory. And, of course, it's filled with allusions to the Paris Commune and also to the storming of the Bastille in the first real European revolution. And this idea of two different ways of looking at 
what happens in a world, the power and politics of global inequality during climate change. It's epic, it's fantasy, but it has this real politic merged with sci-fi. Oh, I've just loved doing that. So I would say, Joe, it's quite different in, yeah. in that I think the vibe and the feel of book two is more about looking at these different places. Like book one, there's a whole series in Baghdad. Uh-huh. So Paris, Ahmedabad, Baghdad, and certainly this thing I call Pacifica, which is this huge swath of the North American West Coast. And again, acknowledging that a lot of the characters, almost all of them, are settlers uh, uninvited on other people's lands. All of that is really looking at a kind of global gaze at what these characters are going through. And that kind of leads me to another thing I just wanted to edge in there was that in this book, you have some new characters, and the characters from book one are there, but they're kind of softer, they're more in the background. And I'm hoping at some point we'll talk about some of my favorite new characters. And, And one of them is Sharonda, who's such a plot driver in this book. She's a skilled warrior queen, strong, brilliant, beautiful, extrovert. And she has this, like, what I call Kali energy. And then, of course, there's the hero, Brahma. But Brahma almost takes a back seat to, to Sharanda for a while in the book. And, and then you have these um, social media influencers, uh, who are also her assassins, Rajan France and Gabberbai. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and so what is it like for you as the author to, to um, have this world that you created in the first book and uh, bring new characters in and, and, and see how this world um, expands as, as, as time goes on? The time travel thing as well is fascinating because... It's not, say, one line, is it? it? It goes back and forth, doesn't it? It does. It does, and I love it. And how does it feel? It feels amazing. And part of the joy of these conversations is that uh, I take a look at the poems before we speak, and I take a look at what I've been creating, and it brings me back in connection to why I do this, you know, the joy in creating one of the central themes, there's a couple I'd like to touch on in our conversation today about Brahma's quest. I mean, obviously it's a quest. Mm-hmm. So let's say three things, you know, and that quest has three kind of key subparts. There's the battle for good and evil, because mm-hmm. Brahma's motto is let all evil die and the good endure, and the reader is left to interpret that as they will. And there's climate change, which is central, integral, in the background, always happening, the modus operandi Mm -hmm. for everything that happens. It's accelerated, it's frequent, and it has a huge ferocity that no one anticipated, right? It comes on stronger, faster, more brutal than we anticipated. And then the third sub-thing, so there's a battle for good and evil, there's climate change, accelerated, frequent, and ferocious. And then there's this whole power and politics thing that I don't think was nearly as prevalent 
um, the magic, the spells, the chants, they're all there, uh -huh. and they play an important part. But book two is very much about power and politics. And as I was reflecting for our conversation, I was thinking about how in our conversation for book one, you had really picked up on the matriarchal, mother goddess, Brahma's, a feminine reimagining of the hero. And this book compares and contrasts with that, where some of the key figures are this young boy rescued at the end of book one, Raphael. Uh -huh. And he grows up in this book, and he discovers he's not an orphan. He thought he was, but he's actually the son of this reluctant scholar king, Bartholomew, the leader of the resistance. So there, I was really interested as a writer to exploring the father-son relationship. And then this wild card character started taking over, as she does in her relationship with both men, Sharonda. Yeah. Uh, and leads us to very interesting tensions between, well, what is good? What is evil? If we're all, as humans, on the side of not wanting accelerated climate change, are we going to choose a kind of hyper-capitalist model that makes the trains run on time and ensures our supply chain goods are at our fingertips? I'm not knocking that. I, I like that, too. It's how yeah. we live. Yeah. But... I think my dystopian world shows, like any dystopian, that there's going to be some terrible, terrible cost to that way of living. And so then the resistance has to decide, are they going to choose violence or not violence? And so these two locales, Ahmedabad and Gujarat and Paris in a reimagined Europe, with the resistance having this brief, shining moment, like Camelot, right, yeah. like King Arthur's Court, where they have been able to suppress some of the more egregious inequalities of consortium, only to face the same questions, dependency on oil, which is almost non-existent by the time the resistance gets to power under Bartholomew and Raphael, enabled by Sharonda, their fabulous war general. They have supply chain issues. They have water issues, they have the need to plant trees in shade to make things and there's this tremendous pressure between fighting off still, the consortium hasn't gone away anywhere, you know, mm -hmm. like if you think of Ukraine and Putin, I mean the battles continue against the evil dictatorship and the good people and you have Sharonda who, her motto is very much by any means necessary and you need people like that when you're fighting evil. Right. But I'm sh I'm sure you can see in the book, and it is my invitation to the reader to think about what is the cost of that. You yeah. know, I was thinking that Sharon is kind of like Malcolm X, and Brahm is kind of like Martin Luther King. And do you choose nonviolence? So Bartholomew in in this city, Ahmedabad, that I'm referencing, he takes his newly refound son Raphael with Brahma and they go on this trek to meet the makers of Ahmedabad. These are outcast, dark skinned men and women, children who do pottery but mainly textile skills. It's small craft, easy on the environment. They take their time stitch by stitch, mm -hmm. throwing mud on the wheel. They make useful, beautiful things. 
things to drink from and eat from, using clay fired in kilns close to the ground. They are, they are people who want to make beautiful, functional things to help with survival. They save seeds. And they are the opposite of violent protest and agitators. And I actually have a poem I'd love to read mm-hmm. that kind of, when, when the time is right, you tell me that really sets, this is the fulcrum. This is the pivot of the book. So as, as, so, you, as you find the poem, um, yeah. I, I have one question about um, what you've just said. Um, it, it, it's sort of like to me as, as reading that part of the book where, where um, one side triumphs over another, um, that whenever you have people involved, regardless of the people who are involved, um, the same sort of questions as to, to what leadership is or, or um, what we do next. I guess the, these things come up, don't they? It's sort of like mm-hmm. um, conflict is inevitable whenever we get through a journey, say. Mm-hmm. Um, there's always going to be someone who decides what happens and then and the people who aren't going to be happy with those decisions. Um, yeah. So I guess we, we, we have to, be, in a sense, um, I guess a lot of us who think that, that um, what, what's good is, is, is no conflict. I guess humans are inherently conflicted people, aren't we? Indeed. And I feel, as a writer, as a creator, that for too long, eco-fiction, fiction about climate change and the environment, kind of took place in this bubble that focused on very important work, how to save um, natural fauna and flora, yeah. and didn't really think about humans, and certainly didn't engage with, and we talked about this in my last book, Conversation With You, didn't engage with issues of racial justice, inequity, social economic inequity. I think that's hugely changing, and a lot of it's through creators of color, mm. uh, looking at eco-fiction and, and everything that comes with it, and climate, the climate emergency through the lenses that they have to, because who is bearing the brunt of all this most? Yeah. If you don't have air conditioning in Phoenix, Arizona, and you work in the service industry, life is pretty different than when you're living in Scottsdale and, you know, right. still caring about the environment but having access to a heat pump in your house. Like, it becomes very different. So I have found the poem. Shall yeah. I read a little? Yeah, pl- please. Thank you. So um, I'm going to read a little sonnet um, from the last poem of the first section of Brahma's Quest. And my editor at Wonderful Nightwood Edition, Silas White, really helped me think about placing this poem for the reader at the end of Part 1. So by the end of Part 1, Brahma, it's a quest, Brahma's Quest, Mm -hmm. she has refound this young boy, Raphael, she has realized that she has to connect Raphael with Bartholomew because he's now this reluctant leader of this resistance. And it looks like because of climate change, the resistance is going to have half a chance to succeed. She's been hearing things about this mysterious, charismatic war general that's winning all these battles against the evil consortium, the Sharonda. And she's not sure about her at all. She, that Sharonda woman makes her nervous. So she's going to have this 
conversation, and here it is in poetry. Battle to begin the rule of the good. If only a fortnight longer, Brahma, we are close to victory. A new day dawns. Locksmith and scholar stood arm's length apart. Open at their feet an old oak box, waiting Brahma's long black braids sweeping the smooth wood. Bartholomew, she said, you must end this war now. His once red hair streaked gray, eyes burning bright. Soon. We'll end it soon. We'll end hunger too. You'll help us, won't you? You'll use your power. Brahma sighed and shook her head, heart heavy. Don't you see, Bartholomew? This will end In ruin, he said, with a rueful smile. When consortium fell, it fell for lack. No food, no seasons, no turning back. It's one of my favorite poems in the book. It's a sonnet. It ends with that rhymey, rhymey couplet. And it's this conversation, right, with great poignancy between Bartholomew and Brahma about what's going to happen next. And so one of the things that happens next is are these great treks, these quests, mm-hmm. because Bartholomew is determined to try and come up with a model of governing that puts food on the table, that helps people, but that isn't based in this extractive, environmentally degrading consortium empire practice. Will he succeed? Well, readers will have to see. So he goes to Ahmedabad, the city where my mother's family are close to in, in Gujarat. Mm-hmm. And I'll just read you this, this little sonnet, because this is really at the heart of the tension of this book. The makers of Ahmedabad, makers of the East, we knew to call them Param Tarek Garigars. Ashvali saris, gold brocade borders. Outside, the mob, faces contorted, spit hurled, fists banging, car hoods, truck tires kicked. Men in balaclavas, women hooded, flags draped around their torsos and their arms. Consortiums transported them worldwide, unskilled for two generations, cut off, no access to learning, that might inform sectarian electronic news feeds. Their earbuds filled, bought, traded for fuel, cyborgs, Bitcoin, and insider accounts, bloated, once were landed, once knew how to stay true. Outside, slogans shouting a faint reverb, this unbelonging wanderers let loose. So that mob scene Mm -hmm. was a late addition to my manuscript as I watched, and we talked about this in book one, not only in the United States, the January 6th mob revolters, shouters as I call them, but of course, whilst I was deep in edits, February of 2022, what we saw in Ottawa and elsewhere in Canada, the so-called freedom convoy, and that is my echo evocation of that kind of a mob they happen world over you know you see them in Paris 
And here is the counterpoint sonnet. It's a series of sonnets right in the middle of the book. Inside, hidden from view, from noise and shouting, no guards with keys, none who knew the right spells, huts so humble, cow dung, canvas sacks, tarp, cast off, blackened floors, dirt trod and coal hearts, inside. The air shimmering with making. Auntie to niece, grandmother to daughter, toddy cotton, hundreds of mirrors sewn side by side, squatting, vagar spice jars shelved, riverside dwellers encamped illegally, sure. Sabarmati River pollutants, chemicals, ingested a lifetime, still laboring though. Garbage manufactured, free trade zone pulp. But this belonging, makers, haunches to mud. Skills passed down against such odds, hand to mouth. There, there's such a rhythm, by the way, as, as I'm listening to you read, read these poems that I've already read um, a couple of days before. Um, that uh, it evokes for me as the reader, now the listener, um, something about your work and, and, and how you work, I guess, is, is what I'm curious about. Um, as you write, do you read aloud? I mean, do, do, do you read yeah. aloud, say, as you write, or is it more when you're editing, say? It's both, and I love that you feel the rhythm. There better bloody well be. These are highly crafted <laughs> sonnets in iambic pentameter. I've spent a lot of craft skill learning and, you know, still learning, never there, always always aspiring to learn more about the craft and the skill. As I said in our first conversation, I am hoping, you know, it's up to the reader, that they will experience this work like you do when you go inside something that's been built with care mm. and skill and thought, that kind of awe, not like, oh, isn't really great, obviously that would be horrible, but that kind of awe that, hey, someone made this for me and didn't just slap it together, didn't just throw down some lines, which can be fine and wonderful, but this, this isn't that. Yeah, this it, is about being a maker and donning the mantle of craft and skill. What you just heard were sonnets in blank verse meter that I am doing my level best to honor a 2,000-year-old English language tradition. You bet I read them out loud. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's the thing is, is, is um, uh, there are, are, are pieces in the book that I had to reread um, because... Um, um, I found when I did reread them, uh, there was something else that I got after the subsequent read um, that I didn't get the first time. And there's certain things that I certainly remember the, the, the first poem you just read. Um, listening to you read, I got something else out of it that I, I probably didn't read uh, the first time or the second time. And um, it is a, it is well crafted. It is it is it is. Um, a book that has poems in it that are um, well built, and um, it, it shows the reverence for craft, not just in terms of writing itself, but but y you do show in, in the book um, 
this uh, appreciation, I guess, that you have for people who make things. It's um, more than that, Joe, though. Thank you for saying that. It's more. I feel passionately and deeply through the words of these characters. I'm going to sneak in just a little bit yeah. more from this long sequence. This is a profound rethinking of how we might choose to be in our climate emergency. I'll just read this. Outside, the mob shouting slogan, armed fists. Inside, dried flowers, mordant, boiled claw. Outside, guns of Bitcoin, hobnailed boots marched. Inside, tamarind seeds crushed, stirred. Mixtures red and black from juggery and iron. Hours in detail, warp or weft, threads bound, holy center, holy fire making. Sculpt, pour, dip, cut, brush, paint, dry, stain, and stitch. Cradle cloth and doorways, mata, mata, which is mother, mother. So it is a mother goddess guild of makers making the functional for survival, saving seeds, small craft workers, not big industrial, um, militarized outfits of agriculture. And that this is one um, option for us. And then, of course, there's Paris which I think we'll talk about, too. Yeah. So w- when you're able to contrast these things and these these, these sort of two, and it's not just two competing forces, because in, in, in every discourse or every, every society there are m- multiple ideas of how to go about things. Um, in that poem that you just read, it, it's two competing views in terms of, of people that make things and the people that just essentially just shout and... Um, and destroy things. Yeah. And destroy it. Um, how are you able to, I don't know if, um, uh, this makes sense, but, but how are you able to, to, to see both sides and, and, and not empathizes, that's not the right word, but, but, um, I think it is. I like you saying that. I think that's spot on. I think it would just be a didactic treaty of one point of view. And what would be the interest in that? I, as a poet, as an epic writer, where I'm blending novelistic forms with characters and their motivation. You know, Sharonda is a, she's a leader of these kind of shouty mobs. Mm-hmm. She's an extrovert. She has great energy and you need people like that in the battle. You do. She's a war general. She's a hero. She's incredible with a sword, with guns, with missiles. She, she makes things happen. I love her. She's one of my favorite characters I've ever created. But there's a price to pay for those who pick up the sword and you know the rest. So I'm inviting readers to go undergo a profound contemplation of what path. Let all evil die and the good endure. I'll just read you a little bit about this assignment, these assassins, the social media influencers. They are some of my other favorite characters. They're modeled on Shakespeare's. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, mm, right. the two fellows in Hamlet that were repurposed with the fabulous playwright Tom Stoppard in right. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. And I create Gujarati-Norwegian versions, Rosencrantz, <laughs> I know, it's so much fun. 
I hope you love all the poems with them because I love them. They're deceitful. They're assassins. They're social media influencers. They're videographers. They go on this time travel at Sharonda's request in a series of poems, blank verse, cantos, drawing from Dante and Shakespeare. Uh And they go to places like Paris, to Ireland, to Moscow in different time frames. And she says to them, Rajinkrantz and Gabarbai, on assignment again, time travel to retrieve plans from the past. These might work for us, they told Sharonda. She agreed. September portal, 1649. Depositions accumulated. Beggars, widows, and orphans transported. Adventured money transferred to the land. Settlement. A plan to be repeated. Data to maps. Landscape for the act. Degrees of guilt establishing forfeit. That's how it's done. So pay attention, they said. Ratios a system one-fifth, three-quarters. The province of Connaught and County Clare. Deadlines given for transplanting or death. Clearance of sweeping, strong-armed hand embalmed. Perimeter, a ten-mile stretch, reserved. Certificates, categories, acres, meticulous and well-organized lines. Who to bring in? Who to set down on farms? Who to build homes for? Who to cast out? Banished and broken hearts. Old tunes echoing down decades and danced, disinherited in chains, Irish still passed down, landless and remaining, to hew and to draw, carvers and weavers, crofters and potters, always a tinker singing her sly songs, always following the line of the land. Hmm thought Rajinkrantz and Gabberby, portal to portal. We see possibilities. It, so that is Ireland yeah. in September of 1649, and Oliver Cromwell and his guys, the Roundheads, are in Ireland, and they're carving it up for what will become a Norman-Irish squiocracy and forcing the Catholic indigenous people off the land, transporting them elsewhere, setting up a paddle, a pattern of settlement that will be replicated in, let's see, Canada, South Africa, <laughs> Pakistan, yeah, yeah. India. You get the picture. Yeah, yeah. And is all into it. Sharonda knows that in order to fight the evil, she's got to have a little bit of it herself. And so Rajinkrantz and Guildenstern, on her request, they go to Paris, 1789. We know what happens then. Uh-huh. And, and when they bring her back plans from Paris, based on um, 1789 and the ransacking of the Bastille, she says, she laughs, she gets energy. She says, margins shape-shifting into the center, the people forerunning July, I'm all for history. Sharonda laughed. The, the other thing, Renee, that I got as I was reading this book, and, and, and um, I'm reminded of it as, as you've read the last couple of poems, um, is that, um, yes, you, you did have to, to pay attention to a meter as you're writing, but at the same time, you, you uh, had a lot of fun writing poems in this book, that, that um, creating certain characters and, 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 and situations that they find themselves in. 
Um, you're to, you're so responsible for that. You really influenced <laughs> me as I was writing this book because when we talked about book one, you know, you and I agreed that the acceleration of climate change and pandemics and contagion and all the catastrophes my characters uh, my char- my characters are facing, man, we're there and it can be bleak. And I definitely wanted the reader in this very serious book to have some fun. You know, the kind of black humor, the dark humor, the sideswipe humor that gets us through tough times. Mm. And I hope people fall in love with Rajin Krantz and Gabberby. They're not nice, but they're fun. And Sharonda, who's a much more serious, in-depth, fascinating character, um, yeah, there should be some fun, and I, I had fun, although it was it was a very tough year. Yeah, the you know my mom died just as this manuscript was due to be submitted, and so it's part of life, right? The joy and the tragedy all happening at once, and this merging of epic forms, blank verse and sonnet, with this novelistic love of character. Um, that's the making in me. That, you know, I, I don't do pottery. I don't stitch clothes. I don't I try and save seeds. I'm really into, into the whole right to repair uh-huh. and save seed movement, as we talked about. But what do I do? What do I bring to the table? I try and make things really beautifully and well-crafted for you, the reader. Um, you mentioned in the book, and, and you've alluded to... to um, uh, uh, <laughs> A situation last year with, with, with family. You, you refer to it in the book as a family catastrophe. Um, yeah. How are you able to work um, through that? And 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 I'm I'm curious to know: does writing does that yield anything useful in that in that process of grief? Say, yeah, I think it does. It must have. I mean, I would visit my my mom, my late mother, in hospital, and on the way in the skytrain back, I would scribble lines of poetry. I think that's the way creatives roll, right? And I think all people, all humans, when we're faced with trauma and intense pain, we're often driven to art. And if you happen to pick up a pencil, that's your thing, then that's your thing. The other thing I was going to ask you was um, how you write. You mentioned writing with with pen and pencil, or, or, or paper and pencil, I should say. Um, is that how a lot of your drafts, is that... A lot, uh, how they're done, say, on, on pen and paper or notebook and pen, say? You know, it's changing. I'm going to read you a few lines from a poem called Once Was Summer, because, you know, we'll be at the end of September when this goes out, and and then I'll tell you about how I wrote it, which is quite different, if I may. So, once was summer, no greenness, local tree canopy gone, Buildings jam-packed, adjacent concrete towers. Private libraries closed, roadblocks, armed guards. Year over year, under funding of shade, we organized our own fire brigade. Older children sent, ambulance crews helped. What side of the buildings are they on? What floor? And were they alone and using These were the questions we taught them to ask. Aunties walked miles before sunrise with masks, wishing well water clean and free they'd last. 
No tongue tasted sweeter or limbs refreshed. So those lines were written in our parched, drought-ridden summers of the last few years. Mm. And I take my phone and I observe literally what's happening around me. And those lines were written um, last year and the year before, especially during the heat dome, where I saw ambulance crews, bless them, in our East Vancouver neighborhood, asking what side of the building are the people on that were suffering from heat stroke and what floor did they happen to be alone and using. And this idea of shade, I have become obsessed with shade. If we don't plant more trees and support the trees and start saving our water when we get our water more and better, we're going to be in big trouble. And this is what my characters are experiencing. And so I've taken to walking around with my hat. I've never worn a hat the way I wear it now. Um, with my sunscreen, with my darkened sun um, shades because my eyes have become so sensitive to the light, which is so fierce, right? We're all talking yeah, about yeah. it. And seeking shade. You see me walking on the street. It's like hop, skip, jump to get to the shade. And I compose by dictating into my phone and then I transcribe. I scribble notes while I'm walking. So I'm doing a lot more composition while I'm walking mm. or on transit now that I'm allowing myself just a little bit out the door. Yeah, and um, I was going to ask you about um, music because there's a certain, um, there, there is a, a rhythm to, to a lot of the poems that, that I enjoyed um, and, and uh, enjoyed more as I was rereading. Um, is music something when you're working, say, at home in, in front of a computer? Is that something you have on? Yeah, in fact. In fact, more so for this book, I would say, maybe because of the grief work and everything else, to tune that out. Um, Mozart is a go-to. Um, Gustav Holt. There's this CBC classical radio show, I think on Saturday morning, and I will note down pieces. Um, I like opera introduced to me by my husband, so we've gone to different operas, and then I'll look at that music. Mm-hmm. However, it's generally wordless music mm-hmm. that helps me. Right. If it has words, it distracts me. Yeah, a lot of writers that I've, I've talked to and asked about music and, and writing say that, yeah, it has to be um, wordless because the, the I guess the words come into their ear and stay in their head, I guess, right? Yep. Yeah. Um, What's the least enjoyable part of of writing for you? I think it's when I feel blocked, when I have an idea, a vision, I'm hearing something that's coming from somewhere, and I can't get to it, either because of external circumstances, you know, Mm -hmm. having to work to make a living as a creative writing instructor, which I love, but... Not so much when I'm grading. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, or bad things happening in my life, family catastrophes, or my own my own situation. You know, sometimes you you just have trouble accessing the moments, the space, physical or emotional to write and that's really hard. Especially when you're working on something so vast. 
I think that's one of the reasons this work has sustained me because I have little tips and tricks if anyone's interested out there. I get into world building. I make character notes. I read. You can see all the research I've poured into this, yeah, which I yeah. love doing. I love reading about times past and then figuring out ways to bring that into my poetic craft. I love reading um, Milton and Shakespeare and Chaucer and Dante and different translations to give me ideas on how to approach the structure of poetry. So, kind of like that. And, and how does it feel like when inspiration or creativity strikes? Um, uh, when you get unblocked, if you will, and, and the words or the characters start flowing. Um, I'm sure that's an enjoyable experience. Is it, is it, um, does it surprise you when it happens, say? It sure does, although I'm not really into um, this idea of inspiration, right? Like, I'm really into a practice inspired by these makers that I, I love. Um, so... The joy is always doing the work and having fun with it. Um, I don't know if you picked up, speaking of having fun, so fun, fun, believe it or not, writing about this really dark <laughs> catastrophe. Yeah, yeah. Fun is an important part of it. So I have fun with characters, as you can tell from the book. It's all poetry. It's serious poetry, quote-unquote. But the characters, I hope, I hope the readers will experience as multidimensional and sometimes interesting and fun and so I don't know if you've picked up on the character T-Lock who was in book one and it has a I would say more prominent role in book two so her name is an acronym for the last of her kind uh-huh. T-Lock spelled T-L-O-H-K H-K T-Lock and of course she's me <laughs> she's a rendition of me the scribe I'm the last of my kind I don't have children my parents, sadly, are now both passed away. Happily, I have nieces and nephews, but, mm-hmm. you know, I'm literally blessed. I'm a kind and I'm a scribe. I'm a writer. So, like many epic writers, Dante does this. Yay, me and Dante. Aw. <laughs> <laughs> um, we put ourselves in our epics, right? And Tilak is a scribe, and she's often handing Brahma things. She's leaving things for Brahma, parchments, inscriptions. She hires herself out, Tilak does, in these end times to write down letters, missives, memories for ordinary people. And one of my favorite sets of poems in the book is when Brahma, who reads upside down really well, she's in a tavern uh-huh. when she's on her quest to find Raphael and Bartholomew in the first part of the book, and she's in a tavern, and she's watching a long line of ordinary people sign up for Tilak's services so that Tilak can write whatever they need written. Because in this dystopia, you know, a lot of people have forgotten how to write or they don't have the means. They don't have access to paper or pencils. And electricity is so rare and so much for the exclusive. We call it the big E in this book. And you have to get ration cards. So there's Brahma in a tavern. And Tilak is inscribing these stories. And I'll just read you a little bit from one of my favorites, and it's of a, a fighter known as Swords in this book. 
So in book one, I called them swords girls and beggar boys. And in this book, I've tried to make them more gender neutral. So they're swords and beggars. And so here's a tale of the sword turned seed saver. One of my absolute favorite poems in this book. As a child, I was obsessed with safety, security, secrets, and magic walking to the river where I'd run skipping stones, leaping over tires at night set to fire, then to the culvert it were after the Battle of Kingsway. Safe house, what some called manse, large yellow brick-walled garden, hidden door, honey locust trees brushing there to find tact to the seed saver's hut, a Sheba calendar. I turned the pages, counted 64, each page a move checked against replication. Old books on chess, each square contained a warning about change, the kind we found ourselves in, drought and floods. Ground ozone, night takes bishop, saves the queen, east Antarctic ice sheet, protected path. Climate change, checkmate, prophecy or fate, each page an image, chalice or oak box. Words touched my fingertips and whispered songs, barely audible. Something about a beggar boy, thrown into a rogue portal, transponder emanating vibrations, great year calling, on coup de dee, vega to draco. Renee? Yeah. How um concerned are you about legacy? Do, do do you um think about your work and how it's regarded? I do. I'm very concerned about it. I'm writing this oeuvre. You know, it's scary. I try not to think about these things at all when I'm writing, you know. I just want to make good poems that are well crafted and give pleasure and to be open to whatever's channeling through me. But since the death now of my mom, being no parents, mm-hmm. having no children, I absolutely think of legacy and my work is my legacy. And who will remember me? Maybe nobody, right? Maybe my books will be on dusty shelves, forgotten. Maybe they won't be. Maybe 50 years from now, God willing, we'll still have books and publishing. I hope so. And people will find this work and it will speak to them. It's certainly written to be that kind of a thing, mm. you know, to endure. Let all evil die and the good endure. And that poem I read, it's this woman who chose to become a seed saver instead of using and wielding her sword. It's, it's a person who said no to violence and yes to harvesting and saving and making and she finds this calendar, a magical calendar, a Shiva calendar. So I'm weaving in my heritage. Uh-huh. And in it, she sees images of important plot points for those who follow. The beggar boy that we last saw in book one, who's been trapped in a rogue portal. He's doomed right now to play an eternal game of chess, which helps prevent the ultimate degradation of the East Antarctic ice sheet. 
And the third servant doesn't necessarily know all that. She's just looking at these images, but she hears something barely audible. And, of course, it's some of these magic chants that are woven throughout the work. So that's a lot of craft. That's a lot of plot. That's all written in blank verse. Mm -hmm. And that's my response to this beautiful question about legacy. Yeah, I do. And I have no control over that, right? That's up to the readers and fate, chance, karma, dharma. All I can do, line by line, image by image, word by word, is try and write the best poetry I can. And, and, and so the, the, this book, as well as the first book, are, are concerned with, with um, this struggle between good and evil. Um, we seem to live in a time where... Um, I guess the bad people are getting a lot of, uh, taking up a lot of oxygen, if you will, and 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 um, I worry that that um, the good won't endure. Um, do you feel that? I feel that ultimately life will find a way. It may not be humans. We may have blown our chance. But this beautiful planet, is it, what, 4 billion years old? It will out-survive the evil. And our chance, I still feel we have a chance, might be narrower and narrower margins. Narrow and narrow, the crack in the great castle door. But um, making compassion, thinking, maybe a little less, feeling a little more, being rather than fighting and taking and being rapacious and wasteful and destructive. Um, I feel there's hope. And I think the natural world and artists and creators show us the way. Yeah, and, and that, that's the, the, the great thing about um, Brahma's Quest and, and, and the first book, uh, Brahma and the Beggar Boys, that... that um, the way forward, if you will, is seen through the eyes of people that we haven't seen before in, say, um, novels or, or fiction. The, the, the people don't look like the heroes that we've read heretofore. Mm -hmm. That was important for you uh, as the writer of the book to, to, to bring these characters forward, right? Yeah, very much so. And some of the more powerful poems, I think, are about these workers, often women of color from different parts of the world who are doomed to be outcasts or um, caretakers or laborers or care workers. And they, um, they rise up. They, they, decide to resist. Now, what happens is, and I think this I spent a lot of time on, there's a group of them that go with Sharonda, and I do love them, and I do love Sharonda, but they, they choose violence, and they become something called the Magnolia Brigade, loosely based on one of my all-time favorite novels, Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens, and mm -hmm. one of my all-time favorite characters, Madame Lafarge. And the Magnolia Brigade choose violence, 
And the makers of Omnibot, who we've already met through my reading of some of the poems, and they certainly adhere to Brahma, they choose a different way. So I think pretty much everything about this epic is a reimagining and repurposing of culture, mixing East and West, Muslim, Hindu, Christian norms and icons, merging it into my own thing. Um, one of my favorite poets, um, her husband said to me, Peter Quartermain, a great poet and writer in his own right, he said, mm-hmm. you know, you're writing a map history of the world. Uh, kind of, kind of, yeah. I'll take that. So, reimagining these wonderful stories, Homer's Odyssey, particularly the translation by Emily Wilson, which I really encourage people to get, or Shadi Barch's translation of the Indian by Virgil, reimagining the great work mm-hmm. into a story that represents a lot better the world the way I see it, giving voice to folks who don't necessarily appear on the pages of epics, mm-hmm. or even a lot of tablet poetry sometimes. Yeah. Um, that's, that's a big part of this work, yeah. Well, what is it like for you um, in the, the period once, say, you've submitted a manuscript and um, it's published? Um, do, do characters like Brahma, like Sharonda, do, do, they, do they talk to you still? Oh, they do. Um, and this tension between them, um, I'm just going to read a little bit. Uh, we was at a reading earlier this fall, and people just love this one. So mm-hmm. Sharonda and Brahma are always having this conversation in my head. And remember, I've got the luxury of, um, you know, i got book three and book four and so on coming. So here's a little bit. Sharonda and Brahma, their first meeting, Brahma, silent, precise, quiet, controlled. Hands to locks, as was told. Bravado doesn't feed mouths, Brahma said. Sharonda's fury no match for resolve. Demigoddess, Brahma, to war hero, Sharonda, wary, an unseen wire pulling them close, apart. Adversary adept, both of them fierce. Sharonda, fire and lightning. Rattling guns, sharp sword jabs. Brahma, smooth, still intent, minute by minute, careful with each task. The tougher the moment, the more silent. I can't tell you how often, how that the book is in your hands and in the hands of readers, I think of these two women because, of course, they are the Kali and Lakshmi, the Mother Mary and Joan of Arc. They are eternal female human archetypes constantly doing this dance between extrovert and introvert, gold and silver, sun Mm. and moon, violence and peace. They are the many-headed images of what humans can be. And... I'm so not either of them, but I think of them a lot. And I'm just thinking of this now, like in the moment of this conversation, Margaret Atwood's 
um, The Robber Bride is one of my all-time favorite Margaret Atwood books. Mm -hmm. And she does something similar with all the female characters in that book. They are actually, I think my read is, aspects of the divine female. And when you've asked me about legacy, when you've asked me that now the book is published, do I still think about my characters? Big time. And I think that feeling of legacy and character really comes through Sharonda. Now, you know, Sharonda has a secret, and it's embedded in the book. So these books have a lot of secrets. We have Brahma on this quest that's running through the series about discovering that she actually is semi-divine, mm -hmm. not totally. She's a demigoddess, so there's limits to what she can do. And then we have these other characters with secrets. They all have secrets. And we heard that sword turn Seedsaver say, as a child, I was obsessed with. And that's, you know, my voice coming through that character. But Pilok has a secret, and Brahma has a secret. Raphael's going to have a big, fat, destructive secret, which I won't give away, that has catastrophic consequences for his life. Mm -hmm. Hint, he falls in love with Sharonda, of course. But Sharonda is a very complex character, and I think about her a lot. Will she? She supposedly comes to a certain end. Will she reappear in book three? I don't know. But you know her original name. When we first hear about her, we hear these women in Gujarat warning, kind of foreshadowing Brahma, saying, oh, we've heard this warrior general. Does everyone know what her real name is? Because it's not Sharonda. Mm. And I'll leave it at that. Like, I hope readers really figure out, like, there's an underlayer to this extroverted, sharp, sassy, smart, brilliant war general, a real vulnerable inner heart because of a very specific set of circumstances that happened to her, all told through poetry. Yeah, and that's the thing that, that one forgets as, as they're reading the book, is that it is poetry um, because the characters are so rich and the situations that they find themselves in are so um, at times daunting and at, at times um, enjoyable. Uh, to see or, or to read, um, you've created a marvelous world here, and and um, um, I, I can't say how much I enjoyed the book, and and um, also enjoyed how much it made me think about things that that I didn't think I would think about or, or want to even think about at times. Um, it, it's such fun to to catch up and and, and talk to you, uh, Renee, and and I look forward to the next chat, and and hopefully soon. What an honor. What a pleasure. Big-time gratitude. The website for more is at thecanadaproject.wordpress.com. The book is called Brahma's Quest. It's the second uh, book in the uh, epic fantasy saga in verse, The Heart of This Journey Bears All Patterns. It's uh, published by Nightwood Editions. Its author, Renee Saklikar, joined me on the line from here in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Plunta. <laughs>